If you act like you're in fifth grade or younger. Yeah, you're good. Good morning. Good morning, good morning. So, I want to talk about two things. One, um, I just want to let you know that God loves you. And God is always there for us. I'm going to read a quick verse out of the Bible from the passage that we were that we are reading this morning, and we're going to just I just want you to know this, okay? This is talking about God, and it says that He said, God said, "Surely they are my people." Who are God's people? Yeah, are you God's people? Yes, yes you are. Good answer, Mila. Um, Children who will not deal falsely, and he became their Savior. God is our Savior. In their affliction, he was afflicted. So do you know what that means? Have you ever been around someone who's sad? How does it make you feel? Makes you happy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, your last day of elementary school was on Friday, and all these kids around you were crying, and it made you think about crying, didn't it? A little bit. A little bit. Yeah, but you're Jason's daughter, so you don't cry, you just throw elbows. Amen. All right. Um, but, yeah, when you're around someone who's sad, it can make you feel sad. What about when you're around someone who's really happy? How does that make you feel? makes you feel happy, right? If someone's smiling, it makes you want to smile. And God says, it says here, that in our affliction, he was afflicted. That means when we are sad, he is sad. He's sad with us, right? He's sad when bad things happen in the world. He hasn't gone away. He hasn't checked out. He's still with us. He still loves us. He's still our Savior. And he is sad when we are sad. How does that make you feel? To know that God understands what you're going through and that he's there for you, it should make us feel safe and it help our hearts to be at rest, right? Because we know that God is with us. All right. I think that's, you think that's good? What was the point? When we're sad, God's ha- sad. When we're happy, God's happy. Right? He is with us. He understands us. He hears us. He loves us. And we are his children. Okay. I think that's pretty good. Can I pray for you guys? All right. Dear God, thank you for these precious children. Thank you for the gift that they are to our lives and our church and the families that they are a part of. And I just pray your blessing over them as they study more of your word and hope for kids this morning. Fill them with your Holy Spirit and lead them into a deeper understanding of your love for them and your grace over them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great time in Hope for Kids.
Will you join me as we prepare our hearts for God's word this morning? God, our loving Father, we come before you today with broken hearts, um, just shattered by the events of this past week. We pray that you would pour out your spirit on the town of Uvalde, the state of Texas, this country, and the world, that your peace would reign here on earth. Lord, um, there's been an unspeakable evil perpetrated in our land. We, we know that you saw it, you heard those shots and screams. And Lord, you are the God who is there in the midst of it all. So we, we turn to you and we pray for the progress of your kingdom on this earth to advance your glory, your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness, your kindness, your love in this dark and hurting world. Father, we know that you have chosen us to be those agents of your kingdom, peacemakers, those who love in the face of hate. And so we pray that you would be at work in our hearts, that you would take our confessions of sin and doubt and fear and turn them into strength and faith and grace for others. Lord, that there would be peace on earth and that it would begin with us. We pray for those families who have lost children this week. We pray your comfort and peace over their hearts. We know that we are praying the impossible, and yet we pray anyway, because we know that you are the God of the impossible. And so, Lord, we pray for healing. We pray for uh, convergence of people in the wake of this to be a demonstration of the way that you bring hearts and souls together, that we would be at work against the division in our society to bring about peace and the growth of your grace and kingdom on this earth. Lord, we thank you for this time that you give us each week to return to your word in this way. We pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning, that we would be grown as the result of having met you here through your word today. And Father, we, um, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us, teach us, but even more than that, that you would bring us to action, to the good works which you have planned in advance for us to do. Lord, that we might glorify your name through uh, our response to your word. We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So, we are in the midst of a series of messages 
through the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament gospel of Isaiah. And uh, as you probably already know, Isaiah was an Old Testament prophet who lived during the final century of the existence of God's people in Jerusalem where there was a a temple intact um, that was built by King Solomon. And Isaiah sees a few things coming that he puts into his uh, great piece of literature, this book of Isaiah that we've been studying. And among those things that he foresees is the, is the, the simple fact that as God's people ignore God's word, um, that there is a forthcoming chaos that will be the result of them uh, sort of walking through the logical consequences of their actions. And on a personal level, we've all seen this in our lives, where we did not um, listen, we did not heed God's word or his spirit, and we went ahead with our own thoughts, plans, and ideas, and ran into a brick wall, and it hurt. And it caused uh, pain, difficulty, affliction. I think I think most of us have lived long enough to see that. And this is sort of a basic component of humanity that Isaiah sees in his, in his capacity as the representative of God's voice on earth. And that's not all that he saw. He, while he did see and tell forth the coming separation from God and one another that our sin would bring about, he also foresaw the salvation that God would provide for his people. He begins to develop in his work this idea of one who would come, sent by God, actually the Son of God, and the the very presence of God on earth, Emmanuel, Isaiah called him, God with us, that this God with us would come, and offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, that he would save us from the ultimate consequences of our sin, that being eternal separation from God. And so Isaiah sees both the separation that our sin will cause, he sees the salvation that God has promised in the face of that sin, and then towards the end of his work, he begins to fold in 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 larger and larger ways this idea that God promises to his people an eternal sanctuary, a place of spiritual rest. Um, It it seems in many ways uh, ironic to be talking about something like rest in a week like we just had. Um, There's, there's, (laughs) it, it seems far away. It seems distant and almost impossible. And yet, Isaiah's job was to look ahead in in sort of the, the coming redemption of God's people and tell of what he saw, that God will provide for his people an eternal rest, a place of joy and worship and peace that will last literally, forever. And so, we are uh, looking at 
the book of Isaiah over the course of this series in, 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 in installments that are covering sometimes a few chapters at once. Today we're, we're looking into two of the chapters towards the end of the book, and we've been kind of going through the book in sequence. Um, and we're going to look at chapters 63 and 64, and what I've done is I've just taken a couple of excerpts out of each chapter to kind of give you the, the highlight, the key idea that Isaiah developed in each one of those passages, or each one of those chapters. And so I, I realize that, that in doing this, we're, we're missing a few uh, things. But if you go back and read these two chapters yourself, please bring with you that, that understanding that Isaiah is weaving those three chords together throughout his work of the separation of our sin, the salvation through our Messiah, and the eternal sanctuary that is ours as children of God. And you will see those themes in each of those chapters. And we're just going to focus on a couple of high points this morning from those chapters. And so as I read this, you will, you will hear a line... In all their affliction, he was afflicted. I read, I read it to the kids, and it's just like, like we planned this series out months ago. I had no idea that these words would be so apropos this week, but here they are. And, and I could probably argue that any chapter of Scripture would have something that, that would touch upon uh, our hearts in the face of tragedy, but... These are the words that are coming to us this week, and I just want you to I want to just make sure you see those. Uh, they are remarkable words uh, for our current context. I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 63, verses 7 through 12, and then I'm going to turn to Isaiah chapter 64 and read verses 4 through 9. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. The praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their Savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old, of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? And now from Isaiah chapter 64, verses 4 through 9. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts 
for those who wait for him. You meet him joyfully. I'm sorry. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and have made us melt in the hand of your iniquities, excuse me, of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. I think about myself as a child and my relationship with my dad who was um, involved in my life and he, he, he took an active involvement in our lives. Um, and I think about those times where I was not making wise choices and it it brought about that painful confrontation with dad no matter how difficult those confronta- confrontations were i always knew that he loved me and i knew that it was my behavior that had brought about the, the separation between us, if you will, this, this distance, this, this rupture in our connection. And I knew that he would work it through in such a way that that rupture was restored. And so I, I think about the way that Isaiah sort of projects who God is to us in this passage. And I think that's a pretty good metaphor, that God is our loving Father, and however um, painful our our sin may cause us to, to feel or be, He loves us. He's at work. And his ultimate goal is the restoration of relationship between us and himself and between us and one another, his, his children. That is his ethic, his continual recurring voice of 
reconciliation, restoration, healing, and peace. And Isaiah, as, as we've discussed through this series, was living at a time when everything was falling apart in the society around him. And he could see a time coming where that falling apart would be final, where there would be the destruction and devastation of Jerusalem, the dismantling of the temple, the disappearance of that representation of God's place on earth, his, where his presence resided in the, in the heart of that temple. And yet Isaiah knew that that would not be the end. He saw beyond that devastation the heart of a God who desires restoration, rebuilding, uh, the reestablishment of his relationship with his people, the resetting of his presence on earth. And Isaiah somehow managed to see, and, and he actually he wrote to these people who would be coming back to a Jerusalem decades after its destruction, he wrote to that group of people what it would be like to walk back into a city that was in ruins, where, where animals were grazing in what were once busy streets. And he said, you are God's people. He will rebuild He will restore. He will save, redeem, renew the hearts of broken people. And so, here we are, looking at these two chapters, and when I was was looking at this passage, the the first impulse is just to deal with chapter 63 and then deal with chapter 64. And then as I was organizing those thoughts, I, I saw something that each chapter picked up similar themes in similar ways. So the, the verse references in this morning's messages are gonna, is message is going to be a little bit uh, disjointed in the sense that I'm pulling into each point passages from each of those chapters. But I think you'll see um, as we get started like how Isaiah in both of these chapters sees these two aspects of God that are very pertinent to us in the wake of devastation. So, this idea that Isaiah is working out in these final chapters is the, the bigger expression of this idea of sanctuary and spiritual rest. And so, here, in chapters 63 and 64... He points to two aspects of who God is that lead us to a place where we can be at rest and peace spiritually. The first of those character or the first of those aspects of God is our call to rest in God's steadfast character. That is, it is the who-ness of God, who He is that allows us to be at rest in our relationship with him. Our God is all-powerful. Our God is all-knowing. 
our God is not surprised by the rising up of evil in this world. He's not surprised by the welling up of sin in our hearts. He's not deterred. He's not thrown. He's not in any way shaken by what we throw at him. And so we're going to begin just looking at this idea in both of these chapters that we are to rest in a God who has a steadfast character. That is, as we see in chapter 63, we are to rest in his unchanging nature. So, this is really hard to explain, but I'm going to give it a try anyway. So, who is this God that has revealed himself to us in the Bible? One of the things that the scriptures teach us about our God is that he does not change. So, let me just try to cast that for you for a moment. He is eternally loving toward his own, and he is eternally at war against evil. So, our God hates evil. He loves his children. Those two things happen at the same time, all the time. He doesn't change. The aspect of his character that we may be relating to at any one moment may be very different from the aspect of his character that we are relating to at some other moment. But he has not changed. He's not surprised. He's not thrown off course. If, as Isaiah paints him, this God who loves us, at the very same time, hates sin, what are we to do? So, imagine that you're, I don't know, holding a snake. I think that's a fair representation for sin. It's been thrown out there, or evil, right? We've heard that before. So let's say you're holding a snake, and someone's trying to kill the snake. If you keep holding the snake, what is likely to happen to you? you're going to probably get injured, right? Um, I'm sure Chuck Norris could, like, kick the snake's head off and you'd be fine. But anybody else, if we keep holding on to our sin while God hates sin, guess what that's going to feel like to us? It might feel like God hates you or me. Is that true? No, it is not. God does not hate you. He loves you. He hates our sin. And so our calling, according to what Isaiah is laying out in this chapter, is to let go of that against which God is fighting. He is fighting against sin, against evil, against that which is his enemy, And so we will be wise to let go of that against which God is fighting and to hold on to God's commitment to remember. 
This is a really important word that's in this passage where Isaiah says, and I've got to read it to you. Verse 11, Then he remembered the days of old. That word for remembered is sort of ingrained in the Hebrew language as one of the attributes that God has imbued into the hearts of men and women. That he has given us this ability to remember. We are actually called by this word in the Bible. In in the earliest portions of the Bible, mankind is described as rememberers, those who remember. And our God is the God of remembrance. And you see Isaiah pointing to that here. God remembers his faithfulness, his promises, everything. And that remembrance is part of his nature. He always remembers. He never forgets. And in that remembrance, he moves for our redemption. He remembers, as this passage points out, to make for himself an everlasting name. The end of verse 12. This God is very purposeful in his movements. He's not wasting time or effort. He remembers who he is and how he has always related to his people to guide them, to move them toward redemption and salvation. And he is the God who remembers for the sake of establishing for himself an everlasting name. Apart apart from God, what defined you? What defines us as human beings apart from our Creator? It, It is mostly our sin that defines us, our selfishness, our self-interest. And God says, I'm going to change your identity for my name's sake. Our God is the God of redemption. He's the God of forgiveness, of grace, of mercy and kindness, and eternal love. This is what he is establishing in each one of our hearts Every time he redeems and he restores and he rebuilds and he remembers who he is and who he loves. And so we are this people who are called to rest in God's unchanging nature, that he is eternally against evil and sin, and he always remembers his character, his grace, his people, 
and what it is he's doing with us. We are to rest in his unchanging nature, and we are to rest in his unchanging response to sin. Chapter 64, the second half of verse 5, reminds us that we need to admit our need for salvation. Um, My wife and I were watching a, um, let's call it a modern western, and uh, the lead character gets up at a function to pray, and he's a cowboy, he's a rancher, and he says, Dear God, please give us rain, a little bit of luck, we'll take care of the rest. Amen. It's a great line, right? It's a great line. Um, and, and that may actually define the American idea of Christianity pretty well. Can I give you a biblical idea of Christianity? It goes something like this. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. That biblical Christianity goes something like this. God, I'm broken. I'm a wreck. I, I need to wake up. I need you to wake me up. I'm hurting. I'm lost. I'm alone, and apart from you, I'm without hope. When we render ourselves before our Creator like that, we are in the correct posture to breathe again, to find life spiritually through the Messiah to find forgiveness and redemption, to be a part of this movement of God to remember and to rebuild and to restore and renew. Our starting point is brokenness. Isaiah understood this. And that's why when when he foretold that Jerusalem would be utterly and completely destroyed he also knew that that would be a new starting point. That God would bring his people back. That that temple would be rebuilt for one single purpose. The dedication of the Messiah upon his birth and circumcision several hundred years later. That that temple would be there at the right time, for the right reason, to explode the meaning of God's presence on earth. From 
being one little room in a temple in Jerusalem to being the heart of each man and woman redeemed by his grace through Jesus Christ. His presence, his living presence is everywhere. It's in your heart. We are the people he has remembered. We must admit our need for salvation and we must stop trying to score points with God. Some people are more prone to this than others. But we all, we all tend to think that if we can just behave ourselves well enough, God will bless us. And God says, oi, they, no, sweetheart, listen to me. You, in your sin, are utterly and completely broken. I, in my heart, have chosen to redeem you, to renew you, to restore you, to rebuild from the ruins of your life something of purpose and hope. So follow me and let go of your need to try and earn something. His work on the cross has earned for you what you could never get for yourself. Rest there. We are to rest in God's steadfast character, and we are to rest in God's steadfast love. That word that's used twice in chapter 63, verse 1, once in the first sentence, once in the last sentence, that steadfast love is a Hebrew word that is so packed with meaning, it's really hard to define. It's the Old Testament word for grace. It's the Old Testament word for unconditional love. It's the Old Testament word for God's eternal loving kindness toward us. The word is used over 95% of the time that it's used in the Old Testament. It's used to refer for, to God's love for his people. His eternal, unconditional, unchanging, steadfast love. It is a love in which we can rest. We can rest in his relentless heart for redemption. Our God is on a mission to redeem. To move by his spirit into the hearts of men and women who do not deserve what they're about to receive, and to reform, reshape who they are. We are to claim his unconditional salvation. Listen carefully. There is nothing that you can do to contribute to your own salvation. There is nothing that you can do to contribute to your own salvation. That work was done for you on the cross of Jesus Christ once and for all. His last words, it is finished. You are done. You are free. You are forgiven. You are loved. 
And so you and I are to claim that unconditional salvation, and we are to feel his unending empathy. Your God is with you. He hears you. He sees you. He feels you. He never changes. And, and that is simultaneously awesome and dreadful, wonderful and fearful, right? He never changes. <laughs> but in that unchanging nature, he loves you. That never changes. And so here we are as the objects of God's affection. What is he going to do with us? He's going to let us break, to run into the brick wall of our own sin, and then he's going to pick us up. He's going to breathe life back into us, and he's going to rebuild and restore and renew and reestablish his relationship with us. That is who he is. We can rest in his steadfast love, in his relentless heart for redemption, and we can rest in his relentless love for sinners. You and I are to rely on his redeeming acts. I sort of jumped ahead earlier and made this point a couple of minutes ago. Um, But there it is, right? This idea in Isaiah chapter 64 um, from all of old no one has heard or perceived by the ear the eye has no, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him you meet him who joyfully works righteousness those who remember you and your ways and you see that turning there of the word remember that we serve the God who remembers by remembering, by remembering who he is and how he works. And so we are called to rely on his redeeming acts. The reason that we act righteously is because he acted righteously on our behalf. We don't act righteously to earn his favor. We act righteously because he gave us his favor. And then this idea of resting in God's relentless love for sinners is also a call to trust in his Father's heart. Your God loves you. He is on a mission to extricate the sin from our hearts. To restore us, to redeem us, to make us each day, hopefully, a little more like Him. A little more reflective of His nature. To make us the people who remember the God who remembers. I don't know, I, I still marvel at this, how, how someone living 
in a, a decaying society in which Isaiah lived, how he could see not just the fact, well, you know, the fact that he could see that this was not sustainable long-term, that people calling themselves God's chosen people and acting like a bunch of idiots, like this was not a sustainable deal. He could see, I could see how he could see that. But how he saw beyond that to the, to the return of God's people, to the rebuilding of that temple, to the reestablishment of his presence in the hearts of his people, to the coming of the Messiah, to the redemption of all of his children, I marvel. And he didn't even stop there. He looks beyond it to this state of eternal peace as if to say, your God who remembers is on a mission and he won't stop until he has accomplished all that his word has spoken. You, my friends, are the object of his affection. He's not stopping. He loves you. He's here to redeem, to restore, to renew, to rebuild, to make us into something that looks a little bit more like what it should. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we acknowledge before you that we have all become like one who is unclean. that any righteous deeds that we throw at the foot of your cross to try and earn your favor are worthless. What you want is our hearts. And from that, that unconditional grace, we are to work, we are to live out your word, we are to be your people who remember, who remember what's right and what's wrong, who remember what love looks like lived out because you demonstrated that to us on the cross. Lord, lift our heads from the chaos that swarms and help us to remember that you are the God who never forgets, who has a plan and a purpose, and will accomplish everything that your word set forth before us. We thank you that you are that God. Help us to rest in who you are and how you love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.